Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing, the podcast that continues to set records around the world. And then, as we often do, we break those records. My name is Jody Jenkins. My name is Tony Clement. And we have another excellent program for you. And before we get to our guest, we have to thank our sponsors. And John Mutton and the team at Municipal Solutions, of course, week in and week out. They are our presenting sponsors. You can find them online at municipalsolutions.ca. And, Tony, I know that he's been very active on Instagram. He, I like his dogs. Do, have yeah. you ever met his dogs? No, I, I've, I haven't seen John in months, of course, oh. because uh, this thing called lockdown. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, wink, but, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody. And I haven't even met uh, Anna yet. So uh, it's one of these things that we'll have to get to once we're out of this wonderful situation we find ourselves in. But in the meantime, he's very busy at work at Municipal Solutions, a lot of development services and project management. Uh, so if you're looking for development approval or permit ex- expediting, if you need planning services with with municipalities, engineering services, architectural services, if you have a minor variance application or a land severance application, or if you need a building permit, certainly municipalsolutions.ca is your place to go for all of your Municipal Solutions needs. I'm still working on that uh, little jingle. That little jingle. You you never know. (laughs) Keep <laughs> yeah. And then we have uh, Chris Chris and the gang at Polytrack. You know, uh, we know, Jody, that we have uh, government relations pros who listen to our program. And Polytrack offers GR Pros a secure hub to store your advocacy data. Uh, this includes stakeholder contact details, engagement reports, and key messages. It means advocacy data at your fingertips, which means less compliance and reporting time, and it means you can spend more time actually growing your business. So visit polytrackwithaq.com. Mention and another thing, podcast, when you sign up and you receive white glove onboarding services for free, 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 including tutorial and Q&A for your team. So all you GR pros out there, check out polytrack.com. And then our wonderful friends at Think Data Works. Uh, you can find them at thinkdataworks.com, Twitter at thinkdataworks, Instagram at thinkdatahumans. And again, the age-old question has to be, how confident are you in your organization's data governance? You know, there's been over $350 million in fines due to a lack of a legal basis for data processing and security. Think Data Works has the technology to help build a collaborative and compliant data workflow for you. You get better return on investment, a faster time to insights, and an easier way to discover, govern, and modernize your data. It is a curated catalog of data, and therefore you get multiples of business values. So save yourself from fines, use data better, increase consumer trust, and increase outcomes. Go to Think Data Works. There you go. And as always, you can find links to all their sites on our fabulous website and another thing podcast.ca. Okay, let's get right to it. Tony, you have lined up another slam dunk when it comes to guests, and we are excited for this one. I think we're going to have an excellent discussion. So I will let you take the mic and introduce our 
guest today. Well, thank you, Jody. It certainly is. And another thing, podcast pleasure to have Danielle Smith joining us. She is, as she says in her biography, a proud Albertan. She lives in High River. Uh, She is a former leader of the Wild Rose Party and a former member of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta. She has been for many years uh, before politics, after politics, a TV and radio commentator. And it also says in her bio, she also owns and operates the Whistle Stop Diner. So we'll have to ask about that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Danielle Smith. Hello, Tony. Hi, Jody. Pleasure to be here. Welcome. It's great to have you here. And let me just start with the Whistle Stop Diner. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, my gosh. We are getting so confused with the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mirror, Alberta. So the Whistle Stop Cafe has decided to defy the lockdown orders tw- oh, uh, no. twice. Now, yeah, they were the ones that ended up pushing the government to open the first time back in February. And now that they've been closed down again, they doubled down. They decided to set up outdoor stages and uh, outdoor patio areas. And so we, we alternate going on to our Facebook page, having people say, you people, you should shut down. You you shouldn't defy the orders and others saying right on we're with you we're going to come down and support you so we have to we have to let people know that's not us we we are a a diner in high river and the neat part about our our story is that uh, there was a a CN uh, dining car that was retired. The CN, CN Rail had uh, initially started this this rail car as a passenger service, and then in Expo they knew that they needed more dining cars to take passengers to Montreal, and so they converted this passenger car into a dining car. Had a long life until 1989 when it retired to High River, and then was has been operating as a, a diner ever since. It fell into a bit of disrepair and was probably headed to the junkyard, and so my husband and I bought it a few years ago. Totally renovated oh, and wow. restored it. It is back to its former glory. We serve the best eggs Benedict. So if you happen to be in High River, come and uh, come by and see us. When we're eggs open. Benedict, perfect. A whole uh, guys, uh, Jody. Yeah. Are you still with us here? I've got. I've got to answer the doorbell. Can you hold on for one sec? <laughs> <laughs> this has never happened before. Hold on. Okay. I'll be right back with you. Okay. Hold on. Our uh, uh, we were our accountant uh, came by to pick up our uh, tax forms. So there you go. It's okay. We just discovered Jody doesn't like eggs, so that's why there's oh, no okay. enthusiasm for my there's eggs. No Benedict <laughs> Look, we've got roast beef sandwiches, but delicious beef melts. There's a a beautiful butcher shop close by Foothills Custom Meats, so we get our our meat source there, and it's, so you can have that. That's my second favorite thing on the menu. Serve with I'm a vegetarian. Mayo. I'm oh, a vegetarian. Okay. No, you're my not. My brother is a vegan. Here's the thing. My brother's a vegan and my dad has celiac. And so I said to David, when we're putting the menu together, I have to be able to have my whole family here. We can accommodate any food need. I'm just kidding. Perfect. I'm not a no. vegetarian. No, no, he's definitely not. And neither am I. So that sounds wonderful. And thank you for the little uh, descriptor of why you're not the Whistle Stop Cafe as well. We don't want to get in any trouble that way, but I. Well, you know, it's funny, Tony, isn't it? Because, um, like, I consider myself a libertarian, but I'm a libertarian conservative, which means that when I see unfair rules, you bet, I'm going to fight against them tooth and nail, and I'm going to advocate for fewer restrictions. But the law is the law, and so the to me, the idea that that is that, you, especially if you're a business, you sh- you should be following it. You can still continue your advocacy. I I don't begrudge people who made a different choice, but man. 
they have huge hammers. I mean, we had considered, should we stay open if they try to close us again? And then there's this uh, this bar in Calgary called Outlaws that decided to try to fight the man, and they ended up with their food per- permit pulled and their liquor license pulled, their business permit pulled, and then their lease got canceled because they didn't have a, a, a legal right to operate. And so you, you have to sort of balance how far are you, are you willing to go for the fight. Do you, do you just stay close and suck it up for a few weeks knowing that you'll be able to return to business or do you do you fight it out and then potentially never open again and there are a lot of businesses i'm sure that you're finding it in ontario too a lot of businesses who are going through that calculation you just can't keep businesses closed this long and expect that they're going to survive some people are getting pretty desperate danielle just quickly i wanted to just piggyback on that because and get your thoughts uh, you were referencing business but do you think it's is it possible though that the government and some of these you know authorities that say they have these abilities to, as you said, put the, bring the hammer down or they have big hammers and big tools in their tool belts. Is it as extreme or are they as able to do what they say as they make it out to be? And I'll give you an example as to why I would question some of that or ask the question, I guess. We talk about these mandatory hotel quarantines that the government said you have to do when you come into the country. And we've seen numerous examples where you can literally Touchdown at Pearson, touchdown at an airport. They say you have to stay at this hotel. You say, no, I'm not doing it. They give you a ticket and you just go home. Yeah. I Have you been watching Chris Guy? He's got this fabulous. Well, I'm sense familiar of honor. with him. I'm yeah, familiar yeah. with him. He's a little oh, man, over you, the top, but he, okay. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to just put it on. I'd love yeah. for you guys to interview him next. But he's the one I've been following his videos. And I think what he's identified is sometimes there is some bluster on the part of government. And I think individuals have more rights than they think they do. I saw him go through the Pearson. I think it was Pearson Airport. Yeah, it was. And he said, uh, he declared 14, section 14.1 of the Quarantine Act says that you cannot insert a foreign object into a person's body to take a medical test. So he said, I'm declaring my rights under 14.1 of the Quarantine Act. I'm refusing your test. And then he said, and section 6.1 of the charter says that I've got a right to freely enter and exit my country. So I'm declaring that too. He took a $1,200 fine and left. And so I think that people need to know their rights. Now, that being said, He's in their crosshairs because the, the whole cadre of officers ended up visiting his property a couple of weeks later. I think there were, I don't know, a dozen cop cars there. And he's on the no-fly list now. Oh, my gosh. See, yeah, this but, is- I mean, in his case, again, I'm not, I don't disagree with his thought patterns on questioning stuff and, and his rights. But the way he's doing it, like he's going a little over the top. So I think that doesn't help. If he was someone who was just, you know, calm about it and was like, hey, look, you can't do that. I'm, you know, give me my ticket. I'm gone. I I don't think he'd be be in the target, but he's obviously taking a stand. And if he feels that's what he's called to do, then I guess that's, that's his thing. But I do agree with what you're saying. I think that there is more bluster on the government side of things than people actually realize. And if they ask the questions, but a lot of the majority of people are afraid to ask those questions and and there's blowback when you do. Yeah, it's it, it's true. really interesting as well when you're in a conservative governed province, Ontario, Alberta, two examples, I guess Saskatchewan as well, uh, and uh, you know because we, uh, you know, we as conservatives, you know, we, we're freedom loving people, yeah. so we don't really like lockdowns, but 
we have been, those in power have been convinced it is necessary to protect people. And that's something that we also think as conservatives is important, that the state shouldn't do everything, but the one thing it should do is protect the population if there's a, if there's a threat. So, you know, I, I think what's the, the, the toughest part about this for premiers Ford and Kenny are the people who are most upset about this are their own base. Completely. And this is the, I guess, part of the issue is I don't think people oppose sensible rules. They just oppose dumb rules. I mean, what did I see? One meme that went around recently, it was for your safety, this section is closed. And so they had all of this police tape cordoning off a, uh, uh, it must've been an aisle in a Costco or a Walmart full of baby car seats. Right. So it's too dangerous to buy a baby car seat. That's why it's cordoned off because of COVID. I mean, what about the safety issues associated with not being able to have a proper seat when you're driving your your child around? Another one had had masks cordoned off. You couldn't buy a mask. You know, so these are the kinds of things that really get people's dander up, of course. You know, you know, Tony, the thing what I don't understand, and I've been really pressing the premier on this when I've had a a chance to interview when I was in radio, but also uh, I've been asking these questions through my call is uh, why not follow the path of some of the freedom-loving states in the United States? What I, I, I've been following Ron DeSantis for some time, and he came, you know, he did the same thing, lockdown hard last March, April, when people didn't understand who this virus was going to hit, What when we were looking at the ridiculous projections from Neil Ferguson of Imperial College. And then when the next wave came around, instead of locking down, he held a press conference with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Martin Koldorf, um, and he asked, and there was a third doctor there, and he had them walk him through in public with the press explaining why there is another way of doing this. So Dr. J. Bhattacharya is the author of the Great Barrington Declaration, which focus, which says focus protection. Identify those over the age of 70 who have multiple pre-existing conditions, protect them, and let everybody else get on with their life. And uh, Christy Noam. In South Dakota is another example. Now you've got Greg Abbott in Texas. I think there's 15 states that have gone to 100% opening, no mask mandates. And I don't understand why our politicians, especially our conservative ones, aren't looking down to that as an example and finding some courage to to buck the trend. I think if anyone could do it, it could be Jason Kenney or Scott Moe. Maybe not so much in Ontario, but why is there not one? Why is there not one freedom-loving premier prepared to go down the path that we've seen in the U.S.? Well, let me an- let me answer that. Let me answer Sorry, that ahead. because I think the reason is the moment you, as a political leader, say you're going to quote follow the science, then you've lost complete control to whatever the scientist of the day says. Yeah, that's true. When- and isn't that interesting? Because what was the science telling us two weeks ago with a hysterical headline? Oh, my gosh, the UK variant, it's 60% more dangerous. And what did the Lancet article say earlier this week? Hmm, actually, so it's no more da- no more deadly. So th- this is the real problem is that I don't know why people believe that, that there is a single scientist who is the keeper of all knowledge. That is not what science is. Science is a hypothesis, and it is tested, and then it is verified by others. And if if it can be verified by others, a new hypothesis forms, which is tested to be verified by others. That is the process of the scientific method. And yet it seems like we've taken this attitude that once a chief medical officer issues an edict, 
forget all of the contrary things she or he said before. This is the new edict. This is the new way that we have to look at it. No other commentary is allowed. And I think that that has been the worst consequence of COVID is that we've shut down legitimate debate on important issues. We've deplatformed doctors. We've, th- we've had professional colleges threaten doctors and nurses with their jobs for taking a different perspective. And I hope we can recover from that because I think it's eroding confidence and trust in our public officials. Danielle, I just wanted to also make a comment and get your thoughts too and how it's kind of lending itself to this whole conversation in in your province there. And Premier Kenny, I, I don't think he does any any help to himself when he makes comments for those that question um, the lockdowns or the restrictions by calling, you know, in essence, lumping everybody together as unhinged conspiracy theorists. And I think when he uses wording like that, and I get, I know what he's saying, but I think it comes across like me as an example. I, I believe COVID is real. I believe that there is an issue and we have to do We have to have some level of restrictions and we have to be wise about it. But I feel like I get, because I ask questions about it, I feel like I get lumped into that narrative. And, and I don't think it, it's doing him any favors by using wording like that. And I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, you're totally right. There's a, there's a real danger that the premier is in right now that you have now 17 caucus members, one who withdrew because he was the, the speaker and it probably wasn't appropriate for him to sign on to this in the first place, but signed on to a letter saying, we don't, uh, we don't agree with the province-wide lockdown approach. And it's not even that they're being outrageous in their demands. They're basically saying, how about the regions of the province where there's zero cases, as there are in some regions, or less than 10 cases in a massive wide territory? How about we go to regions? reopening. Why can't we go back to the the kind of opening that we had when uh, the premier really was balancing lives and livelihoods last fall? I mean, I think that's a very reasonable position to take. He's locked in and he he won't be persuaded. But I, I, I think you're right. By dismissing even legitimate calls for some kind of reasonable approach, it just further alienates the people who would otherwise vote for him. Uh, the Angus Reid poll was interesting, and you know how polls are, like they're, especially these national ones, the sample sizes are pretty small, so you can only really get an indication of where people at, are at. But what struck me is that Albertans are more likely to say the lockdown restrictions have gone too far than not far enough, which is a complete opposite from what you see in the rest of the country, in the rest of the country, uh, to, to a province. Uh, I have to take a closer look at, at Saskatchewan. They might be close to us too. But all the others are, are, are a reversal. They, there are more people more likely to say lockdown, lockdown harder. And so this is the real challenge, is how much can a province chart a separate course when you've got Ottawa who holds all the cards on vaccines? Is there some kind of pressure saying, hey, do it our way, or you won't get your allotment of, of vaccines because you're being irresponsible? Is it like what we saw in the U.S. when Joe Biden got elected and he was saber-rattling with Ron DeSantis? We're going to have uh, travel restrictions to your state. And DeSantis told him to pound sand. But is that part of it? it would we would we see the federal government shut down or uh, our international airport? Like, I don't know how the relationship, maybe Tony knows because he's a former health minister, but it, it strikes me that there has got to be some major pressure and levers that the, that the federal government is using on health because it makes no sense that everybody is following the same line in spite of the overwhelming commentary that is out there that there is a different way to approach this. 
A hundred percent. I I think that there's uh, probably some form of informal or indirect uh, leverage there. I, I, I don't doubt that for a second. I'd like to just broaden the conversation just to talk a little bit about another topic I know uh, you have opined about, which is uh, the growing cancel culture that uh, people face. And Jody kind of mentioned it in, in one context, but it it's a broad social phenomenon where you know when i was raised i was i was raised with the idea that i disagree with what you say but i'll defend to the death your right to say it uh and uh that seems to be uh maybe generationally or societally now not the norm the norm is if you are saying something that is offensive to me or offensive to me and my twitter mob then you don't have a right to exist anymore on on a platform or uh, in uh, you know the the the, the civic square uh, tell us your thoughts on this let me bridge it by telling you the the reason i i ended up leaving mainstream media was was in was because of of cancel culture but it began my problem i ran afoul of uh, the powers that be all over my covid coverage and so this is why i feel so strongly about free speech and allowing platform to people who have a different view on this i, I tweeted out about hydroxychloroquine back in march and the dogpile on Twitter was immense and bizarrely immense. And I, I had already been studying um, hydroxychloroquine because it emerged as an early potential treatment because of work that had been done in 2005. Uh, it, it, uh, they managed to kill primate cells in culture with, uh, with hydroxychloroquine on SARS-CoV-1. And so that's why initial scientists were looking at this saying, hey, maybe this will work this time around. But as soon as Donald Trump tweeted about it, my gosh, it seems like the media developed some kind of vendetta saying we've got to prove him wrong, which I, I think is is dreadful because what has happened now is that we are in a position where anyone who proposes therapeutics gets shouted down. There's a doctor you know, who finally gave a presentation in Texas, Dr. Peter McCormack, saying if we had used antivirals, uh, steroids, anti-inflammatories, vitamin D, and a few other things, we might have been able to reduce the number of deaths by 85%. Mm-hmm. It's serious when you decide that you're going to clamp down. So that's how I ran afoul, is I wasn't able to do those kinds of stories. But I began to see a real problem with cancel culture in i think the the num the event that sticks in my mind was when james bennett was forced out of his position in the new york times we're publishing Senator Tom Cotton's column saying, you know, we've watched three months of Antifa and Black Bloc joining these largely peaceful protests for BLM and burning things down and burning buildings, and we should send in the military to do something about this. That caused enough Twitter furor and enough internal millennial furor among the staff that he ended up having to leave his position. And I watched that and I thought, you know, I was in I was in print back in two thousand in the in nineteen in the late nineties early 2000s, that would never have happened. If somebody had a problem with a column, you'd just write a counter column. You wouldn't try to get the 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 editor fired over that. And then, of course, we saw Jessica Mulrooney, who one of the probably has the most famous black friend on the planet. She gets accused of privilege, loses her position on CTV and uh, her reputations in tatters. You see Wendy Mesley, like a 30-year veteran journalist of CBC. Um, how is uh, how could she have operated in that climate and been a, a racist? And so I started seeing that it was actually the lefties, the progressives who are now being taken down. So I tried 
So I, I, I'm a, what I've observed, and I was trying to get some clarity on this, and I, I think, unfortunately, this is the way the world works in the mainstream media these days, is that if you create some kind of Twitter furor that upsets advertisers, that put pressure on owners, then you're going to uh, not be long of this world. And that uh, seems to be the pattern, sadly. It doesn't matter if you're left or right. It, the last thing you want is for your name to be trending on Twitter, unless it's because you've posted a cat video or something that has people laughing and having fun. But most of the time, if your name t trends on Twitter, it's very bad news indeed, reputationally. And the saddest part about it is, I don't know that there's a path of redemption. I don't know that there's a pathway back once you've, once you've had that happen to you. So you quit mainstream media, but you still have um, a desire, uh, an interest in expressing your views. So how, how do you do that in this cancel culture world? You do it in alt media. What I've been, what I found really fascinating, and this is un it's unfortunate. Here's the here's the good news, bad news story. The good news story is I'm astonished at how much alt media has grown up in the in the times that in the time I've been on on mainstream media because I, I think the very first online platform I remember seeing was uh, Rebel Media and Ezra Levant on the right, and then Taiyi uh, on the left, and so those were sort of originally the initial. And I don't even think Taiyi does podcasting and and um, and te and television. Maybe maybe the the better analogy is Canada Lands. So they they have um, I think a full service type of platform. And that's the, the to me what I like about those two examples. Even though the mainstream media loves to hate both of them or ignore both of them, is that's how it should be. I mean, would we know that we were training Chinese soldiers on Canadian soil if Rebel Media hadn't reported that? Would we know about the We Charity if Canada Lands hadn't reported that? And so that's where I see the the real good investigative work taking place. Some of it is nutty, some of it's fringy, but there are some good uh, alt media that is emerging where you can have real conversations. And the ideal would be is if they come up with a real nugget, then it can find its way into the mainstream media. And I, I hope we have that happen. What I fear will happen is that more and more alt media will turn into uh, clickbait to try to get the advertisers. So you want to get the eyes, so you get the clicks. And how do you get the clicks? Well, you, you make sure that you're presenting a particular viewpoint or advocacy, and then you, you end up moving away from journalism, and you end up moving more towards uh, like minds, just congregating on your site, which I think gets away from what media is supposed to be. Media is supposed to be a, a ground where we can come together, different viewpoints, battle it out, have the conversation, and hopefully find some agreement. So there's a good news, bad news story. I'm just not sure which direction this one's going to go. We got uh, to do a shout out to a former guest and uh, supporter of our program as well, uh, Holly Doan uh, of Blacklocks, uh, another great investigator. Oh, she's amazing. Isn't she I great? I love Blacklocks. I'd well, love to know more go. about them. Well, how you, did they, you have like, to listen get, to our show. It's I <laughs> will. How do they get all those scoops? They're really amazing. What is her story? Her story is she doesn't care about question period. She just spends her time on uh, access to information requests and she finds the stories. It's, it's just uh, the the traditional digging of journalists uh, to f to find the story rather than going for the shiny object in the in the window. And uh, she they do it very very well. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. And this is the other part, right? I mean, we were we were talking off air about how easy it is now to just get onto one of these programs, buy yourself a $250 mic, and you can do a podcast. Um, you could do a video cast if you use things like StreamYard. You can easily do a blog. It doesn't take much to set that up as, as well. There's all these new online news journals that are starting up, like The Line from Jen, Jen Gerson. So I don't know what's going to happen, frankly, to mainstream media over the next 10 years. But if you can continue to see this type of technology develop, I think if they don't find a way to have real conversations with the full broad spectrum of issues, I, I just think they're going to unfortunately deteriorate into into irrelevance as people find uh, far more interesting conversations taking place in other media. I, I know your time is precious. I have uh, one more question and then I'll pass it over to Jody. But uh, And it's a bit of a retrospective question because when I was doing research for this uh, podcast, I went back to your life, which I knew pretty well. But uh, reading about your political career as well as your journalistic career and then reading about your political career, it was a crazy time to be in Alberta politics. There were <laughs> parties coming and going and people crossing floors and double crossing floors. What, what was the, the biggest lesson you learned about politics that you didn't think you'd had to learn because you were covering politics as a journalist? Presumably you knew a lot about politics, but what was the thing that surprised you the most? <laughs> Trust no one. You know, I think you, you do feel when you're in the middle of it, it that there is no other option sometimes. I mean, I, I just finally, I haven't, hadn't written about how everything went down, um, but I finally just did in my newsletter this this past week, and there's a lot of people who who didn't know it from that perspective. But what I what I learned and what my message was to especially political leaders is they have to understand that in a parliamentary democracy, caucuses have ultimate power. Caucuses always take down leaders, and I don't know why it is leaders when they get in there they choose to cloister themselves in their office, surround themselves by unelected staffers who go around bullying people people to vote one way or the other, and then they never have a conversation with the people who ran alongside them. And of course, ultimately, as things start going wrong and poll results start going in the opposite direction, that creates such a divide that it ultimately causes things to fracture. It's so easy, I think, in a lot of ways to keep, um, to keep caucuses together. A lot of what a person runs for political office for is because they have a burning passion about one or two issues, or they have a burning passion to solve some problem for their constituents. And so giving people those kinds of wins doesn't diminish anyone. And so I've, I, I've, I guess that's the biggest surprise to me is that there is sort of two different cultures in a political party. My style as a leader ultimately was a, a failed style, maybe because I allowed too much caucus freedom. It created too much internal division and not enough esprit de corps. But I think that a lot of political leaders go in the opposite direction, and they think that they can hire a bunch of 20-year-olds to boss people around, and that just creates internal problems that sometimes can also lead to, to caucuses shattering. So that's my, that would be my, my takeaway from all of it. I think that's a very good life lesson there, Danielle. I, uh, being at the receiving end of some of those 20-year-olds, I, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> I thought you might have had an experience like that. I mean, you had a colleague who, who left basically um, saying the, the same thing, the, the MP from, I think he was from St. Albert at the time. And, and so that kind of stuck with me. And that it creates, you know, it bruises people. You, you spend an entire career, um, especially if you run as an older person, you spend an entire career building up a base of 
knowledge, building up your your social network, um, and and really feeling like you can make a difference in politics. And then to get in there and and be told, sit down, shut up, send me your member statement and your questions beforehand, and we'll edit them. That is such an ungratifying. Uh, role to play. And I think it alienates a lot of people. If you want to wonder why it's hard to attract good people to office, why would anyone be attracted to run for political office under those circumstances? Or the ones who are, then are ones who don't have some burning passion to serve the public, or they're just there for the paycheck, which is the wrong type of person you want to attract to politics in the first place. So we've got a, a circular problem here. One of the things Stephen Harper did after every caucus meeting, and he attended every caucus meeting whilst being prime minister, uh, he did not pass that role off to anyone else. But he, after a caucus was formally over, he stayed sometimes for a half an hour and just sat you know, on the dais and people, and I, I, this may sound bad, but it, it's actually very good. People, caucus members, MPs would come up to him with uh, a problem they wanted solved in their writing or a, a piece of advice or a problem that, you know, that, that they saw emerging and he would listen and take notes and he would follow up. And wow. it sounds like, it almost sounds like a court, you know, a court of yours in a court, but it wasn't that way at all. It was peer to peer. Uh, and uh, I, I really respected that. He, he didn't just dash off the, the moment the gavel was down and the caucus meeting was over. He stayed 20 minutes, a half an hour afterwards for that, and I thought that was very, very smart of him. So it makes all the difference because you don't know. There's also, like, let's face it, you would have seen this too, Tony, is there are also gatekeepers in politics. Oh, there are people who want to lord over others, that they have the power of access to the leader. And for, for, for the way you described Harper is he kind of cut through a lot of that. And, and that goes a long way to building relationships and making people feel like the role that they're playing in public service is worth it. Jody Jenkins, any final words? Yeah, just a couple. I was going to make a comment, and then I had a question for Danielle, just just based on what you were saying about the arena of politics these days, and obviously with a municipal background and some federal uh, dabbling as well, I, I 100% agree. And in fact, on my own journey, cause I, I mean, I'm sure all three of us get this question, like, will you run again? Have you ever thought about running in another, you know, different area, blah, blah, blah. But I'm I'm having this journey myself where I'm like, I'm not so convinced that you can... I'm convinced almost that you can do more out of out of the political circle for your community, for your country than you can within. And that's not taking anything away from what people have done. It's just that there's been such a shift in the political realm of it's not about policy, I find anymore. It's about who can we destroy next? That's what that's what it feels like. And I just uh, I applaud both of you for your service and commitment. And I have nowhere near the same kind of acumen, but uh, uh it's uh, it's definitely a different scene, and, and it's uh, not something I would encourage people to go into, as weird as that may seem. You know, it's uh, unless... interesting. Go ahead. Well, it's interesting because Tony has the federal experience, also provincial too, I think. I have provincial experience and really local with the school board. You've got local experience. And I would say the place you can make the biggest difference is at the local level now. Especially, this is the thing that astonished me over the last four years, is the amount of media coverage and airspace and relationships that were destroyed, talking about Donald Trump, 
like I was interested in Donald Trump. I thought I think he would have been better for Alberta if he'd been reelected. And we saw that in the first hours after uh, Joe Biden got elected and canceled Keystone XL. And now you guys are in trouble with the cancellation pending for line five, which is going to deprive Ontario and Quebec of half of its supply of, of, of oil. And so th- when, when, when I look at how much time we spent on American politics, I, ca- I kind of ask the question, like how much, t- why are we not talking about our own politics? So we, we can't control what's happening internationally. We can't really control what's happening at the federal level. We've seen now that you can't really have much room to maneuver at the provincial level when you get into a situation like this. But you can have a lot of, of uh, ability to have influence at the local level. If I was to, to run again... I told people that people were asking me, I said, yeah, I might run for a council position in my own high river council, because that way I can talk about how to build the the community and identify issues and solve that problem at the dog park and make sure those potholes get filled and the streets are clean properly. Like maybe that's where we begin is that we've got to go back to understanding that the first order of government municipal level is the most important level and then build up from there. If you can get some good community service, some meaningful impact happening at the local level, level. Maybe that's something to build on for the higher orders of government. Yeah, and I know I'm not going to completely disagree, but I will. one thing I will say, just because, again, with my experience with the municipal, and, and this is my only, this is my personal experience, so I'm not saying it translates to everybody, but outside of the political circle locally here, I've been, and this isn't me bragging, I'm just giving an actual example, because I had a great team around me, but we've built a 21-bed homeless shelter, the first emergency shelter in our city. We did that without, I wasn't in, in council, this is after, and at the end of this year, we'll have renovated a new unit to create six transitional beds for homeless individuals that are trying to get back on their feet, and I'm not so sure I would have been able to do that while in council because of the the red tape and the bureaucracy I find it easier to do it from outside and just building good relationships with the right people within. So, um, I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but I think that I, I, I don't know. I'm genuinely starting to believe you can do more outside the walls than you can within when it comes to politics. It's, but- it's a, it's, it is a great story. And, and just to tell, like, that's part of the reason why my, my, my diner is kind of my happy place. Cause I know that we're giving people a joyous experience when they're able to come and remind themselves of what it was like to be on a train. But same thing when um, I'm involved in a charity where when COVID hit, we, we reoriented and decided that we needed to make sure that because we've got an old population in High River, we were worried as, with people returning uh, from travel that they would be shut in for 14-day quarantine and have no one to bring them groceries. So we set up a, a system with our with with Sobeys to, to deliver groceries to those who needed them. We've done a food rescue program as well. I talked to a guy in Calgary who's running for Calgary City Council, and through his little community association, he set up 12 programs to identify a need in the community and do exactly that. So so I'm with you um, that you, you 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 probably can through nonprofits, through through business, through advocacy and partnerships, you probably can get more done. But what does that say about government? Right? <laughs> it doesn't <Like>, say much. <laughs> that they're ineffective at every single level, it's... even in their core business. That that I think is uh, that's the that's the really the tragic lesson of all of it, isn't it? Okay, well, last question. Last question here from me, and then Tony, you can wrap it up sure. if you want. And by the way, we are in uncharted waters. 
And Danielle, you now hold the honor of being the guest that's been on the longest show since we started. <laughs> that's I wanna, true. I just want to put that out there. This so, is uh, an occupational hazard of talking to a former radio host. <laughs> we yammer, yammer, yammer on. So my last question, and I'm going to disclaimer right at the beginning, the context of this for anyone who wants to twist it is we're j- this is just for fun, this question. It's a legit question. But we have a great story that happened when we had Dan Albus on the show uh, <laughs> quite a long time ago. He's a mixed martial artist obviously politician but he has a background in mma and we asked him flat out we said as i was kidding i said dan if you could ever roundhouse kick one person in the house who would it be and he was like oh ralph goodale right like just quickly <laughs> spit that out i mean i thought that was the funniest thing ever so i i ask some people not everybody because not everyone could have fun with it i feel like you might have some fun with it and again this is just for fun, not real, and you don't have to answer. But if you could roundhouse kick one person in politics, Danielle, who would it be? Uh, Elizabeth May. Ooh. <laughs> totally. You know, and I used to love that woman. I used to think that she was reasonable. We used to flip pancakes together when she came to the stampede. But the way in which she's demonized our hardworking energy workers in our industry, yeah. the way she lies about the uh, the the extreme, uh, she's taken on the extreme talking points of Extinction Rebellion. I've lost respect for her. She's smarter than that, and she's she's just doing it to foment dissent and to to divide our country and to demonize Alberta. So. I, I used to admire her quite a bit because I used to think she was she was quite reasonable and balanced. I don't think that anymore. So there's where where my, where my kick goes. <laughs> well, Elizabeth used to attend with me the uh, weekly prayer breakfast uh, uh, on Parliament Hill just for MPs and senators. So I will be praying for Elizabeth after that comment. <laughs> so there you go, Danielle Smith. It's been oh. a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, I, I really respect and admire your career. It's been fantastic. I feel uh, Jody and I have just scratched the surface, but you've been a great sport. Thank you. I appreciate that. Talk to you again. The longest show we have done to date, and that was a lot of fun. Danielle. And still one-third of a hurly-burly show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, we haven't poked fun at them in a while. That's interesting. Um, but, yeah, Danielle was amazing. And... Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe that'll be the stock question is, you know, kind of our gimmick. Maybe it is, sounds who would you like it's our shtick. Yeah. Who would you roundhouse kick? I mean, I ask, you know, what would you, what would you tell your younger person? Uh, but I think yours is a little bit more gritty. Oh, but not everyone answers it though. Did we ask, we didn't ask David Pacini who he would kick. Of course he's an Ontario MPP. Uh, if you're wondering, David Pacini, good friend of the show. But uh, sure. if next time he comes on, if okay. he gets another shot, we'll have to ask. I feel like he would answer as well. Um, quickly, I want to say something. Just because Danielle had mentioned Donald Trump, I have two interesting Donald Trump stories. One is uh, everyone would know it, and the second one is kind of uh, personal. So I'll share the personal one first. A good friend of mine, Bobby Bradley, who owns a uh, golf shop in um in the States down in West Palm actually called five star customs, big shout out to five star customs and royalty sports. Uh, they do amazing clothing and some, uh, fitting and, and putters. Anyway, he, uh, he was doing a fundraiser out at a local golf course. Must've been, I don't know if it was a Trump course or not, but anyway, he's on number nine hitting long drives. Cause he's a long driver and someone comes over and says, Hey, uh, the president's just finishing up on hole number eight. I'll bring him over to introduce you. And Bobby thought, Oh, okay. It's the president of the club. Well, <laughs> sure enough, it's number 45, President <laughs> Trump. Oh, yeah. And 
he comes over. I watched the video. The vid- I'll send you the link, but the video is amazing. Anyway, all I, I know Bobby, and I don't know President Trump other than what people have gone on in the media about. And I just watched the exchange. Bobby told me they had a five-minute conversation that was probably one of the most amazing things he's ever had. Uh, Donald Trump was interested in what he had to say, asked him tons of questions. And I just watched the video, and all I thought was that, man, did the media ever do a hatchet job on Trump? And sure, some of it was his own doing. But I just, you know, you got to watch the video and you just go like, it's 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 kind of sad how all that stuff played out. Anyway, the second part of that whole thing about Trump is I couldn't believe either how Sloan, uh, Sly Stallone, the heat he took when he joined, I think was it Mar-a-Lago or one of the Trump courses, and all these people posting how they're going to boycott Stallone films and <laughs> all this stuff. You it's know, just... and this is the thing, like if I spent my time worrying about all of the political views of the people that I watch on television or the people or the musicians that I listen to, I, I, I really, what, what kind of a pathetic life would that be? I mean, yeah. look, look, just, just people are going to, you're going to disagree with people that are in an, uh, in music and entertainment. You're going to disagree with people who are business leaders just disagree with them. Why do you have exactly. to cancel them? Exactly. Exactly. I don't and get it, man. Anyway, but you got to, I'll send you that link to the exchange, like the video. It's a, I thought it was really cool. It just showed the personal, personal side of, of Trump. I, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll take heat for even saying that, but I, I just, it was, a, I thought it was very cool. And again, because I know Bobby so well, I just know that he was like, he was, he was just blown away and he was very impressed and, it's, well, uh, politicians become caricatures. Uh, it yeah. just uh, you become a caricature of yourself, no matter what you do. And uh, I think just people should realize that people are multidimensional. They have good days, they have bad days. They say crappy things, they say nice things. People are people, and that includes politicians. And I'm going to say because I'm I feel like I'm on the verge of ranting, but I just got to say one thing as it popped in my head because I used to be a huge fan of Saturday Night Live. I still watch it the odd time because there are some some. Uh, performers i like on that program but for the most part tony and i don't know if you watch snl these days and never some people might not like sitting like what i'm saying but for the most part saturday night live now makes me puke like it is <laughs> absolutely pathetic and I, I i i mean i would go toe-to-toe with anyone on having a discussion about how pathetic that show is it's just not There's, funny anymore it's so not i don't it's not funny it's it use i can i can appreciate political statements for our political comedy for the purpose of making a statement and showing some sort of bias the odd time and it it goes both ways but they don't go both ways and it is just pathetic like i honestly don't know how some of those performers can look at themselves in the mirror and do that stuff it's just pathetic well when Um, a society loses its sense of humor that's uh, never a good thing so i'm gonna boycott snl (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna cancel them but here's the thing i still watch it right like you know like if i was on the left side of the spectrum i'd be like i'm never i'm unsubscribing to that (laughs) what a world what a world Oh, my gosh. So let's thank our sponsors. I want to thank, uh, uh, of course, uh, municipalsolutions.ca, John Mutton and the gang, and, of course, Chris Moffat Arms at Polytrack, and uh, Brian and Mackenzie at Think Data Works. Uh, there have been great uh, sponsors for our program. We thank you for your loyalty. Check them out. You can also uh, click on the links that are uh, on the description of each podcast at the bottom. I have one more thing before we go. Yes, sir. It's because I feel like uh, challenging your music trivia right now. Oh, no. Just quickly. Yeah, no, just quickly. So I just want you, if you can name um, 
either the artist or the song, then you'll get a point, and we'll just start keeping track of the points. You ready? Okay. Okay, here we go. Here it comes. That's uh, reeling in the years. There you go. Yeah. Okay, that's one point for you. Is that, is that, is that Steely Dan? Or yes. Is that? Yeah. Right, excellent. Uh, yeah, okay. By the way, I did start watching uh, Laurel Canyon. Is that what it's called? Yeah. 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 Do you like it? Yeah, it's good. I haven't watched it. Like, I like watching pieces of it each yeah, night. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's oh, uh, sure. it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of fun. I I <laughs> this will be bad. I do not like Jacob Dylan though. No, oh, so you're it watching the Jacob. Me. You're watching the Jacob Bill, Dylan Laurel Canyon. Yeah, yeah. There's I, another one. Oh, there's another even, one. There's another documentary that's even better than that. Okay, because I, I anyway, I like this one. I'm watching. It's just he's a great musician. Don't get me wrong, but I just he is not engaging. Like I just find him. No, no. I, like, I once I watched the second one, uh, the D- Jacob Dylan one. I wasn't interested in that. There's also okay. a great new doc out about Tina Turner that I'm going to watch. Yeah, it's so, crazy to think like, and Tom Petty is dead, right? Yeah, he is dead. Yeah, it's just interesting. Like you yeah. see some of these, you just Tom Petty. I I went to his concert at uh, in Toronto uh, a couple of months before he died, and thank goodness I, that was the first time I'd seen Tom Petty, and evidently the last time I would see Tom Petty. So at least I had that moment to be in his wonderful world because he was a such a great great musician so. and i and i'm aging myself because of my next comment and i'm sure you might chuckle at this but i had i had zero idea that the beach boys had any influence at all on the beatles if anything i would have thought oh the beatles. yeah influence the beach boys and the second thing was i just learned about this album that's known like around the world as one of the greatest albums ever pet sounds i never sounds. Even heard, i'd never even heard of that oh come on seriously I'm serious I'm no serious. there was a real competition between the beach boys and the beatles a real competition i had no idea oh yeah i would have thought the beatles were like already like gone through the stratosphere and the beach boys were kind of like yeah we want to be like the beatles that's what i would have thought but no, anyway. the Beatles took this competition very like John Lennon is a very competitive or was a very competitive person. Let's yeah. just put it that way. So right. maybe hopefully for another we podcast, we'll have yeah, to get all hopefully, that. <laughs> hopefully you haven't lost any of our subscribers by <laughs> yeah. now. No, uh, no, one no. one gentleman I will give a shout out to because I know he listens right to the end. And that is uh, Mike Stiff uh, in Prince Edward County. Um, he's been holed up there during the pandemic with his wife and mm. grandkids and I think they have some animals and stuff, but anyway, uh, he reached out the other day and he just said he's still enjoying the show. And so we thank Mike for his uh, continued listenership. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. So we'll have to send, we have to, we still haven't made coffee mugs. When we do coffee mugs, yes, we'll, send, we'll send him one. We'll send Mike a coffee mug. Sounds like a plan, my friend. <laughs> All right. Well, we will chat in seven days. We will.